This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luke Olivier's Mable. And I'm Yannick Mignon. And what's our topic for last episode before summarize, Yannick? Permacomputing. What? Yeah. Huh. Okay. Uh, before we start into that, let's just have our quick administrative notes. So like I mentioned part of the intro, uh, this is our lab last episode. Um, because we are taking, uh, I was about to say a small break, but we're not taking a small break this summer. It's a longer break than usual. So we shall be back with episode 189 on September 11th. But before that happens, we have this episode and we're, did I correctly, did I hear correctly? You said perma programming? Perma computing. Perma computing. Okay. So, uh, I'm, uh, I'm at the loss of word. I don't know what it is. So I'm eager to learn about that. That's perfect. And uh, I made sure not to tell the Olivier about the topic yes, ahead of time so he couldn't look it up. <laughs> That's why I'm all confused right now. So. Okay. Well, let me ask you another question then. Do you know about permaculture? Not really. Do you know the word at least? No, no? the word okay. doesn't ring a bell. Okay, okay. Honest, so, so I'll explain per- permaculture first because it sort of builds on top of those ideas. So... Permaculture is a collection of principles and design patterns around building sustainable and secure ecosystems for living beings on Earth, primarily through agriculture and smart use of communal land. Okay. I I know it's a bit of a stretch to think about what that means with regards to what I say, but I need to set this up before we actually get there. Uh, So this entire framework, it dates back to like, I believe the 1970s. Uh, And basically it's like... uh, it's a way of seeing how you can uh, put green ideologies into practice in a way that is actually caring for the earth, actually caring for humanity, and more about uh, sharing any surpluses of your agricultural production with the community. It's like just kind of a little hippie concept, uh, which is mm-hmm. a thing I like to bring up a lot on the show, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so... Permacomputing is a relatively recent concept that is derivative of permaculture, and it sprang out of an article by the artist Viznut that was released during the uh, during June of 2020. And it takes those foundational ethics of permaculture, which is caring for the earth, caring for humanity, and, uh, well, they have to be a little bit creative to work around the whole sharing any surpluses of production with the community thing. Um, but it tries to apply those principles to the world of personal computing, which is something that we are interested in. And uh, very recently, in the last month, actually, the Permacomputing Wiki went up online, uh, which is a really good resource for anyone who who wants to learn more about the topic. And I thought it would make for a really interesting episode if we went through all of the permacomputing principles on the show. There is a lot of really interesting stuff to discuss in here. And uh, unsurprisingly, a lot of them overlap with recurring topics on the podcast. And I think... Hmm. Uh, this is not necessarily a 100% endorsement on my part of permacomputing as like the thing we should all be building our <laughs> software around because I have some issues with it. Uh, I'm sure you'll have some issues with it as well. And there are other, uh, there's other criticism of the, of the thing as well. But I think as, just as a framework, it's helped me solidify some thoughts around technological choices that I wasn't necessarily able to verbalize before. And uh, it's just an interesting way to think about things. And it's a useful idea to know that is out there so that you can think about these things while you're working on software or hardware projects. So that's what we're going to be doing this episode. Uh, There are 
10 principles to go through. So I'm going to go through each one and uh, don't be shy. Just interrupt if you ever want to I'll, step I'll in. I'll interrupt and... now. I was expecting a weird topic, but you just drove me quite the curveball. So I'm uh, pretty excited about where this is going, to be honest. It's not that weird. It's very much in scope for the show. Uh, it's even our usual stuff. It's not that far off from what I talked about last year with trivial technologies. It's mm. just kind of expanding on a lot of those ideas in a different way. But I don't want to spoil too much of it. Right. I guess what I should say before you do that is maybe I was expecting us to talk about trains tonight or some <laughs> random Japanese stuff. But or Minidisc not... Part 2. Yes, Minidisc Part 2. Yes, something more you. But that's also you. It sounds like you. So I'm pretty uh, eager about it's where It's very going. philosophical in nature, which is kind of my thing. So let's start with principle number one, which is care for life. Uh, this is kind of the guide- guiding light of the whole uh, permacomputing thing. It groups together the permacultural ethics of care for the earth and care for humanity into sort of one, because technically the earth is living and we are living. So, ba-ba-da. Uh, and the idea here is uh, build low-power computing systems to better humanity or the biosphere. Uh, you want to minimize the waste of energy, fossil fuels, and rare metals and minerals, and you don't necessarily want to obfuscate waste by shifting the responsibility of that waste up or down the chain. So what that means is, uh, like, if you're calculating, for example, carbon footprint of creating a computer, uh, a lot of people would just measure the carbon footprint of their computer as being the energy cost of running that computer over the lifetime of the device. And it turns out that it takes about three times more energy than it does to run your computer for 10 years to actually make the computer in the first place. Uh, so if you just shift that responsibility onto the manufacturing process and you say, ah, not my responsibility, not my problem, you're kind of not getting it. You sort of have to take the whole approach to, okay, what was the energy cost of manufacturing? What was the energy cost of mining uh, the minerals and rare metals that are in the computer and all of that stuff? And like, what is the total cost of this? So there is a lot of like, not to spoil it too much, but there's a lot of uh, reuse and recycling of materials in uh, permacomputing as a concept, just because inherently, because they have already been produced, the largest costs have already been spent on them in terms of energy that you should probably get more out of them. It's funny that it is the first one, especially the concept of obfuscating waste, because that is a big topic with our transition to electric vehicles, right? Yeah. Because the calculation is completely thrown out of whack with literally lithium batteries, right? Yeah. You consume a lot of that at first, and then you have to repay by uh, buying cheap electricity that is not made with fossil fuels. Huh. Interesting. And there's a whole horrible mining situation around cobalt for batteries which is a whole Mm -hmm. other disaster in the making so there's always that kind of weird element which is like are we just shifting responsibility up or down the chain when we're doing these uh transitions and type of energy and all that stuff and it, it it's a hard thing to think about uh point number two is care for the chips which is kind of what i was talking about there Huge energy and resource costs to the manufacturing of new computer hardware. We should maximize the lifespan of existing hardware. Microchips are inherently not super recyclable. So 
we should be doing whatever is possible to repair what can be repaired. Uh, if it's possible, we should be able to combine salvaged components into new devices. Uh, there is a really interesting project that sort of came out of this permacomputing thing called Collapse OS, which is a new operating system made for Z80 processors that came out in the last few years. Now, j- just for people who don't know, Z80 processors are basically Hello. like... Oh, am I gone? No, no, no. Uh, hello, people that don't know what is Z80. Oh, okay. Uh, Z- Z80 processors were basically like the mainstream processor of the 1980s. They are in the TI-84 huh. plus calculators that everybody oh. buys. They are inside, I believe, either the NES or the... No, it's... The, I think it's either the NES or the Game Boy. I don't remember. But basically, like, it is incredibly mass-produced. I believe it's also what's in the Sega Master System. L- listen... I'm currently eating a TI-84 Plus literally on my desk from high school. Right. Uh, So yeah, this operating system basically runs on devices you put together basically by finding a Z80 somewhere and a bunch of other parts. And you can flash, well, it's not even flash because there was no flash memory, but you can load Collapse OS onto there and write software that runs on this OS. and of course, like related to that, there's the whole idea of moving the computing industry towards planned longevity and design for disassembly, which of course is a topic that comes up comes up a lot when talking about Apple, because naturally they are. This is where I sort of have to plug in my little rant about the whole Apple planned obsolescence thing, because uh, it's very popular even in permacomputing circles to say. Apple makes a lot of money selling new devices to consumers, and therefore uh, they are incentivized to make those devices as useful for as little amount of time as possible. However, in practice, they don't really do that. Uh, in practice, you can buy a Mac and use it for 10 years. You can buy an iPhone and easily use it for five years, uh, if not more. I know a lot of people who are using really old Macs and really old uh, iPhones, and they're not necessarily feeling like they need to pick up a new computer because their computer is still running great and they get a pretty good lifetime of upgrades on their devices although with the apple silicon transition i guess we'll see in a couple years if i'm still saying that uh, because they tend to be a little bit more aggressive during uh, architecture transitions hey one half of this podcast is still recording said podcast on a 10 plus no a 10 year old laptop Okay, me. Yeah. If you remember my episode about the iMac, like I'm talking to you through a MacBook Pro, like the first generation of Retina MacBook Pro. So, yeah, and I would be on a 10 year old MacBook Pro if it wasn't for it dying uh, two years ago, right? And then I had to get a new <laughs> computer. Um, I think the whole Apple planned obsolescence thing is actually uh, it's more nuanced than that. I think they do a very good job of having very good software longevity for their devices and their devices stay useful for a very long time. I think they are not good at repairability, although they are trying to get better at it, but they, I I don't think they're quite there yet. Right. And, uh, there's a lot of stuff that could be made better and more eco-friendly in their devices. But I think as a whole, Apple is doing a lot better in selling you devices that have a lot more longevity than a lot of its competitors do. And the fact that it's not inherently repairable doesn't necessarily mean that they are less uh that they are closer to planned obsolescence than their competitors that are repairable because like i've had to use a lot of android devices recently and i can tell you android device performance degrades remarkably fast it reminds me a lot of the bad days of windows when you had to reinstall the devices Mm. all the time uh and you don't really (laughs) yeah you don't really have that issue with uh macs and iphones so 
I don't know. Uh, but rant over. Back to care for the chips. Uh, another thing that they want uh, people to consider doing more is to popularize time sharing within a community to reduce unnecessarily redundant hardware. Uh, so this can be done in a variety of different ways. Of course, the old school way that we used to do it back in the day is share computers amongst multiple family members. Uh, family computers are not really in vogue anymore, although I, I think you share the iMac for the whole family, right? You do uh, user switching and stuff? Yes, yeah. I do. Um, but like so much of the world has gravitated towards one individual, one device. And that's a lot of waste when we aren't necessarily always using those devices at the same time. Uh, there's stuff like distributed computing, which I have some issues with because I think distributed computing inherently requires some uptime that is not inherently in line with, uh, other Burma computing ideals, uh, and stuff like Pubnixes, which are public Unix servers that people share and SSH into, much like the old days when you had the university computer that everybody used to Telnet into. Uh, I remember going to my uncle's place and he was, uh, he was at the university and he would Telnet into his machine at the, the university from his Mac at home. And it was really weird. Um, but it, it's still a way that people can share computers together and, uh, do things in a distant way. And then your uh, terminal hardware at home can be a much uh, lower power computer because all of the smarts are the computer you're connecting to. So that's care for the chips. Any comments on that? Nope. Okay. Next one is probably the most uh, Yannick of all of the uh, design (laughs) philosophies, which is keep it small. Uh, Prefer small, simple systems with low requirements. Uh, Hmm. Simplicity generally leads to systems that are easier to understand and maintain. Try to minimize your dependencies, both hardware and software. Uh, You want to have low target hardware and low software dependencies. Uh, Try to keep things at human scale such that a complete computing system can be mentally modeled and understood by a single person. This is something that I value a lot. Uh, To go back to last year's episode about why I don't like Swift... Objective-C, by virtue of being inspired by the Smalltalk programming language and being built on top of C, both of those languages are very human-scale languages and were sort of designed for that in a way that Swift and C++ are very much not, Uh, especially if you've been listening to ATP recently, you will know. Uh, (laughs) So uh, I really like human-scale things. I think that uh, being able to understand the whole scope of what your computer is doing and having that be accessible to a single individual so that they can fit into their brain is a great thing to strive to. I don't think we're necessarily there today, but I think it's a good goal to strive for. And uh, the, the other sub-principle in this is that uh, a lot of software is very preoccupied thinking about scalability. Like, oh, what if this thing gets super popular? Or what if this thing... Uh, just needs to serve a bunch of users at once. Uh, and permacomputing sort of flips that on its head and says, actually, you shouldn't be worried so much about scalability uh, for reasons that will become obvious in a little bit. Uh, you should actually be focusing more on downscalability, where you should be trying to make things uh, scalable to less hardware and less uh, demand, uh, less available environments um, for things that will become very obvious in a little second uh so principle number four is hope for the best prepare for the worst uh which again is not 
quite in line with my personal uh, p- pessimist uh, school of thought. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the idea here is uh, build systems that are resilient to intermittent power and networking. And the reason for this is because one of the like sub schools of thought of uh, permacomputing is this idea of something called collapse computing, which has been around for longer than permacomputing. And the idea is uh, at some point there may be a technological collapse, let's say a chip shortage, where it becomes very expensive or unviable to produce new microchips. And we are stuck basically using uh, recycled microchips from older hardware. Maybe we don't have networking or power that is as available as it used to be. You can even just look at natural disasters that have happened within the last decade to see like sometimes power grids get knocked off for like a couple of days or a couple of weeks. Um, if you build systems that are inherently resilient to intermittent power and networking, you can continue to compute in those kinds of environments. Uh, whereas a lot of software today sort of falls on its face if it doesn't have an internet connection. You can just look at last week when the Rogers outage happened here in Canada and nobody was able to do debit card payments for a whole day. That was fun. Uh, so so that's sort of the pessimist side of the uh, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. The hope for the best is within those constraints, still aim for a positive or utopian outlook on what computing should be like. Uh, so try to go for like uh, community outreach and uh, support programs that you can build with computers within your own community that are available intermittently when there's power and networking or that is resilient to that. Um and like there, there are some interesting systems with regards to that. Like um, a few websites recently have started running entirely on solar power. So if it's mm. not sunny outside, sometimes the website is down. And one of the ways you can counteract that is with something called the solar protocol, which is a way of identifying solar web servers around the world and which servers serve the same website. And it's kind of like a load balancer that finds the place where it's sunny <laughs> and goes to that no one. No shit. Uh, so, so that's wow. one of the ideas of something you could take into consideration there where like, yes, your power is intermittent because you're inherently solar powered, um, but you have a way to counteract that uh, in a smart way. So that's kind of cool. Any comments for that one? Uh, this one is quite funny, though. Uh, the prepare for the worst, I think, is it's saving grace, but the hope for the best is kind of remind me of a lot of software development, like startup practices so it's it's kind of up for the worst and ignore the rest if you see what i mean but uh it's glad that they do have the prepare for the worst but it's still pretty uh vague into what they mean and i know they, you mentioned like like network energy uh taking care of that and things like that so yeah, yeah w- one thing i forgot to mention in there is i think like there's also uh because like uh gemini which i talked about last year on the show which is this mm-hmm. uh sort of uh, abuse-proof replacement protocol for uh, for what we consider to be websites, basically. It's a hypertext protocol that is more abuse-proof than the web, which is ripe for abuse. Um, I sort of see it as an interpretation of hope for the best, prepare for the worst, of like abuse-proof your technologies, design them so that they have very little exploitable ways right. of being abused by bad actors. Um, 
I, I don't think that was necessarily written on the wiki, but it is one way to interpret that value. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't have edit rights on the wiki right now. I might actually go propose that as a solution once I have edit rights. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, so now I'm just going to uh, go against what I just said and go on to point number five, which is keep it <laughs> flexible. And <laughs> this is another place where I sort of have some disagreements uh so at the base like there's a lot of unix philosophy stuff here right build small tools uh that do small individual things that can be combined into larger more complex things uh and like one of the big rebuttals to that is that it's great for people who think in the verbs that the unix tools provide but if you don't necessarily think of things in terms of those tools it's very difficult to figure out how to solve problems with those tools uh, if it's not necessarily fitting how your brain works right um so there's always that kind of risk and then like the latter half of uh the keep it flexible principle is to favor programmability and scripting of as many things as possible and design systems that can be incrementally improved at runtime. And this, to me, just sounds like you're tacking on scripting to everything you make, every software you make, and that seems like it goes against the idea of having as simple systems as possible. So it it feels a little bit contradictory to me. I don't think that they're necessarily bad. I think that the idea of uh, trivial technologies that I discussed last year basically says, like, if you want your system to be flexible, the flexibility should be that the code is easy to modify, but not that it should be programmable at runtime necessarily. And I think that's a better compromise than this. Uh, but again, like the, I need to say, like this is something that literally has been around for less than two years. So a lot of these principles are still in flux, and uh, there are many people discussing these things still actively and trying to uh, work out sort of what the issues with this framework is. And I'm just pointing out the ones that I can see for myself. Principle number six is build on a solid ground. And this is interesting. The idea here, and this is, again, going back to topics that we've talked about a lot on the show, is if the idea is we're building systems to last, we should build them atop a mature, solid foundation. Uh, They call this bedrock platforms, which are stable platforms that never change. Um, Naturally, macOS is not one of them. Uh, So (laughs) these can be real platforms. Uh, So some examples that are on the wiki are like IBM PC, uh, although they focus more on DOS than on uh, Windows itself, which is good. Uh, MSX, which is a home computer that was popular in uh, Central and South America, as well as Japan, uh, and the Famicom and NES, because all of these are just mass-produced devices that have parts that are manufactured by more than one provider meaning uh like msx you can get clone msx's that have all parts from all over the world same thing for famicom like people have been reverse engineering those since the mid uh since the early 90s have been shipping their own famicom clone consoles uh, on a single chip and stuff like that so you can easily find famicom hardware that can run uh, software that you write for the famicom it's not hard they can also be virtual machines and this is where i want to bring up a uh, hundred rabbits uh, project called uxn and varvara so uxn is a fictional fantasy sorry not fictional because it actually exists uh, it is a fantasy assembly language so they built their own 
fantasy architecture where they were like, if we were building an 8-bit microcomputer for ourselves, how would we build it? They built their own assembly language. And then they built a virtual spec for a home computer that would be using this architecture, which is called Varvara. And they built an emulator for it for this home computer that doesn't exist in hardware. It just exists in documentation. And they have built an entire suite of uh, creative applications, whether it's like drawing, music production, all of that stuff for this Varvara computer that runs on basically anything. You can run a UXN emulator on Game Boy Advance if you want to. You can run it on the DS. You can run it on your latest Mac. You can run it on a Linux machine. You can run it on, uh, I believe you can run it on DOS now. Uh, it runs on mm. basically anything because it's an 8-bit microcomputer. It's not super demanding to emulate. And they were like, hey, we're tired of trying to build things on multi-platform technologies that suck. So instead of building them on uh, technologies that suck, we're going to build them for our fantasy computer instead, and we're going to emulate it on every machine we're going to buy from now on. Uh, and it's a really, really cool project. I think like there are still big limitations by the fact that it is an 8-bit microcomputer. Uh, like I'm not going to be able to port Cesura to that because good luck uh, playing MP3s on an 8-bit microcomputer. But it's a really cool idea, and it lets you think of like, well, what if I controlled the entire stack of my computer from top to bottom, and I built my entire computing ecosystem from scratch? You would get something like that. And they've done it, and it's really cool. And uh, the developers have a YouTube channel where they keep posting uh, like status updates. Like recently there was a spreadsheet developed for it. Now they're adding menus to all of their apps, like on menu bar, like on the Mac and stuff. Uh, so it's just cool to see this little ecosystem evolve over time. So those, that's the idea of bedrock platforms. And yeah, they can be the real devices or virtual machines. Um, obviously as Mac users, like we don't have the luxury of that. <laughs> uh, the platform evolves every year and evolves very quickly. And uh, it's very much a keep up or fall behind uh, rat race. Uh, and I think like there was more of a case for it in the uh, early to mid 2000s when OS X was brand new and they were f doing new stuff. Nowadays, I feel like the rat race is kind of just like, keeping up with Swift and Swift UI <laughs> more than anything else. It's not like there are huge innovations going on on the Mac necessarily every year. But still, like a lot of the examples you mentioned, and they come from a wiki, so I'm not saying it's your idea, but they are, pla they are platform that were developed and possibly could have been considered 15, 20, 30 years ago as platform that are were not bedrock because they were evolving every couple of years but since they stopped evolving time has made them bedrocks because they haven't changed in the last 20 years yeah well like in in the case of msx and the famicom like msx is kind of a weird home computer you can almost consider mm -hmm. it more like a game console so right. msx and famicom like they're game consoles they ship and they never change because we're still not in the ps360 generation where there's system updates and new apis being no added i know to consoles right i get so that those are actually like bedrock bedrock i agree that ibm pc is not a bedrock platform but at the same time it's like it, it depends what level of abstraction you're writing on top of. Here, I think they were talking more of uh, 
IBM PC and DOS. Com uh, right. But I mentioned that to the to the example of the virtual where somebody literally invented their own language and assembly language and their own like microchip that yeah. never existed. Like tomorrow, and I'm not saying they're doing that, but tomorrow they could say, "Hey, we're shipping version two of this," right? And then we're like, "Oh yeah, I need to if I want to change it uh, and support both." Like there's still, I don't know if it's really written in the wiki, but it seems that there's an implicit timeness to a lot of the of the no there's an implicit timeness to what is considered a bedrock platform and that's pretty interesting to think about so I, I think for uxn the thing that sort of saves it is that the people who are developing uxn and varvara are very much part of the permacomputing community so they are intentionally thinking about these things as they design mm, it and I it's see. more like once the spec is final, we don't intend to change it. And the spec, as far as I know, is final. Um, hmm. So it's only like software that's evolving now and not so much the machine itself. I see. Uh, moving on, of course, from uh, the idea of that is also like there's more to a solid ground than just uh, the platform you're building on top of. There's also don't expect the power grid or global networking to work forever. This comes up a lot in a lot of these <laughs> points. There's a lot of redundance in all of this stuff. And of course, avoid unreliable dependencies as mentioned in Keep It Small. Um, basically, like don't try to reduce as many things as possible that can cause your hardware, uh, your software to break in unexpected ways over time. And by just taking into consideration the platforms you're available on, I, sh I should also qualify this by saying the idea is that your software should at least be able on, uh, available on a bedrock platform. It doesn't mean that it only has to be on bedrock mm. platforms, of course. Um, now, naturally, like if I'm talking about Cezur again, because I'm always thinking about things in concept uh, in the context of software I developed for myself, like. I can't write Cezura for the MSX or the Famicom because those machines don't have the ability to play MP3s. I could maybe get it to work on IBM PC and DOS because there are a lot of IBM PCs with a lot of hardware that can play MP3 and they can run DOS. Um, it might not necessarily be the most fun version of Cezura if I'm running it in DOS, to be honest, but right. it could work. I was about to say, literally not trying to downplay the coolness of such a project, but... Sejura is a pro is a problem you're having that you're trying to fix and trying to fix it with having oh it's working on IBM PC is not really part of how you want it to be solved. Yeah, and I think we we can come back to that at the end of all of the principles, uh, and sort of give our global take on it. Sounds good. Because I think we could spend the entire rest of the episode in yeah, this no, point. No, for sure, for sure. No, but uh, I think, we, and we can end on that, it's just that to me it was interesting that Bedrock, yes, they meant things that do not change, but a lot of the examples are old shit. Oh, yeah, so, I also want to say there is a counterexample, which is uh, I bring up a lot uh, that Linux is not as stable as people think it is, and that mm. uh, generally, like, if you have a binary from 10 years ago on Linux, it probably doesn't run on modern linux and they agree with me on the wiki uh so i was very validated <laughs> <laughs> i was like linux isn't a stable platform sorry especially with everything red hat's doing but yeah okay moving on to point number seven amplify awareness this is one of the two uh vaguest points in these principles 
Um, I had a lot of trouble understanding what this meant, but I think I've got it now and it has a double meaning. So computers should aid in your awareness of what is going on and computers should aid in your awareness of how it is happening. And this is doubly applicable for things that are happening in society at large and things that are happening inside the computer itself. Uh, so this is sort of more a philosophical idea of, of uh, what information should your computer be helping you understand? Uh, because a computer should be aiding with your understanding and your awareness of things around you, but it's not always clear what that should be. So this is sort of meant to anchor the role of the computer in uh, human life uh, and that. So it, it's, hmm. it makes sense. It's just, it's maybe not explained in the most clear way on the wiki. Uh, the one that is a lot more uh, properly explained, uh, to my liking anyway, is principle number eight, which is expose everything. And it's an extension of Amplify Awareness. And the idea here is don't hide information. Keep everything open, modifiable, and flexible. Uh, share your code and design philosophies. I remember, uh, God, it was like almost 10 years ago, if not more, uh, Patrick Roan, who used to administrate the uh, Minimal Mac blog, had this blog post about philosophy.txt, which is like, I would love it if every piece of software had a file in the <laughs> in the download folder called philosophy.txt that just explains like how and why you made things in certain ways. Uh, and I think uh, there's a lot of that in the permanent computing world, which is very interesting to me because I love that shit. Uh, <laughs> like that's half the stuff we talk about in the show. Uh, so, uh, it, it's really nice to actually, uh, be able to see other people's projects and see how they think about their projects because sometimes they have good ideas that I want to uh, bring into my own projects. Talking about don't hide information to go back to that point, uh, this is something you see a lot, again, with Apple, but especially with Apple Cloud stuff. Uh, there is a lot of uh, obtuse um, opaqueness with regards to how iCloud works. And when things don't work with iCloud, it is very hard to find out if it's your fault, if it's iCloud's fault, if it's frozen somewhere, if it just got lost in the clouds. Uh, we used to have this person at one of my old jobs who had two monitors, and she thought that if you could drop documents between the two monitors, if you didn't drag fast enough or something. And I keep thinking of that when thinking about iCloud is like, oh, they, they dropped this file that I was trying to transfer to my other computer between two monitors, and I just lost it or something. Uh, so like having more accessible diagnostic information or just more visibility into the state of what your program is doing at any given time is a really good thing to have. And uh, one of the sub sub points uh, for Expose Everything is to actually provide a visualization of a computer's internal state. And if it's relevant, it's knowledge of its physical environment. So if your application has sensors or whatever that it's talking to, uh, expose the, those in a visualization so that people are less in the dark about what your program is doing and what information it is basing those decisions on. Hmm. Okay, point number nine. Respond to changes. Uh, can you guess what this one's going to be? <laughs> um, yes, but it's kind of ironic if I, I think what it is. Oh, maybe it's not what you think it is then. Uh, okay. So... Respond to changes, of course, point number one, adapt to changes in operating environments, not notably heat, energy, and network, because they're not always going to be available. <laughs> have, right. have I hammered that point in yet? 
but like, like on top of that, like if in theory you're on a bedrock platform, that should be stable. Uh, and I guess they did make it fun of like, oh, you might not have electricity nor co- uh, communications, but sure. Yeah, like the the response to changes is like, don't guarantee, uh, don't assume the 24-7 availability is something that will be true for your application if you're talking about uh, energy or network because it's not necessarily. And again, like I can point to so many phone apps that do nothing if you have inter- <laughs> no internet connection. Uh, so the offline first is a big pillar of uh, permacomputing. Like if your application is not usable offline first and then online is a cherry on top, uh, then it's probably not like in the permacomputing values. You should really value that very highly. And like th- that's one of the values of Cezero, right? It's, I hate, cloud streaming it doesn't work for me 99% of the time the way I want it to and so it is very intentionally offline first in fact right now it's offline only (laughs) and I am very very careful about what online functionality I want to introduce into Cezura so that people don't base their entire workflows around it because then it sort of goes against the purpose of why I made it in the first place Uh, also like on top of just like don't expect there's a network period, there's also don't expect consistent operating performance if you have a network. Uh, so if you're expecting a certain uh, throughput that is going to be delivered consistently, don't design for that because you probably won't be able to control that. It's it's a good reminder because I think this was something, especially as an iOS developer, that was thought of more at the introduction and inception of the iPhone. Definitely. It was running on fucking 2G. So if you wanted to have like somewhat performant, you had to optimize the shit out of your communications over 2G connections. Yeah, nowadays... Now we have 5G. Yeah, we have 5G, so who cares? Yeah, LTE and 5G are generally better internet connections than a lot of people have at home, uh, which is Mm -hmm. scary. And uh, yeah, I think a lot of software has taken shortcuts to assuming that that is always going to be there. And when they're not there, you are very conscious of them. Um, you did actually like hit a point though, which is uh, there is a quote inside this respond to changes point, which is software and hardware systems should not get obsoleted by changing needs and conditions. New software can be written even for old computers. Old software can be modified to respond to new needs New devices can be built from old components. Avoid software rot as in the encouragement of a culture where software becomes obsolete unless it is constantly maintained, which is kind of what we see on macOS is if you write a macOS program today and you try to open it in three years on that version of macOS, it will very likely not work because things are moving so quickly in the Mac world these days. Whether it is warranted or not, we don't really care. It's just probably not going to work unless it is actively being maintained for each version, which kind of sucks, to be honest. There's also a counterpoint to that, which is avoid retro computing, which I found very interesting, but then it kind of made sense. Uh, they define retro computing as trying to reenact a historical time period when a platform was still alive. And they say that is undesirable because you are boxing in th- the limitations that were true back then when that hardware and that software can be capable of so much more if you program it for the modern day and you don't limit yourself to what software was available in 1991 when that machine was popular. 
and I agree with that to some degree. I also kind of don't follow that advice necessarily with my own stuff. Like, uh, like it's no secret that I am collecting a bunch of PS1 games, and I'm very a traditional person when it comes to how I play my PS1 games. Like, I try to intentionally play them off the uh the optical disc i have a boring ass memory card i don't have the fancy memory cards that have infinite space with an sd card in them that you can just throw your saves on the computer i don't have an ode that can load all my games off of an sd card uh i like the uh the routine of taking out the case and looking at the manual when i take out the disc because PS1 manuals for the Japanese region are fucking insane. They are awesome. Uh, and I don't look at them enough. Uh, and I, I just get so happy every time I change games on my PS1 because of that. Right. But what you're describing is re- literally retro computing or retro gaming at this point. Like you do yeah. it for the sake of reliving that era, not to still use your PS1 with like modern software. Yeah. It's also kind of weird because like I'm first of all I'm playing on a Japanese PS1 so it's not like reliving my childhood because a lot of these games never came out here and the other thing is the games I am playing now on my PS1 are very very different from the games that I played on PS1 back in the day when I was a kid it's not so much like retro computing to be nostalgic for my childhood it's like retro computing for secondhand nostalgia of mid 90s Japan which is a whole other issue that we can unpack on a different episode but <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so I, I don't necessarily take their advice here. Um, but I mean, like, I did tinker around with, uh, Think C on System 6 because I was thinking about writing some System 6 hardware for a while, uh, some System 6 hard- software for a while, uh, which would have been very weird. Uh, Yannick developed software in 2001 for System 6. Like, you don't see that every day. Yeah. And I guess the respond to change and this kind of quote, I forgot. Wasn't it somebody that wrote like TLS support for old, no, for classic macOS to write their own browser or something like that? I recall you. Uh, do you mean the video series where they were writing a mail client? Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I think I'm mixing up uh, uh, web browser with mail client because yeah. they had to write like, a, like, like. Why am I blanking on the name? But like, they had to write modern like web. Well, securities encryption things like that to make well, it work the the thing is you couldn't because the machine was too slow to actually do it in a reasonable amount of time for it to actually be usable so what they did instead is they got a small microcontroller that is many times more powerful than the mac plus and huh. they basically made like this proxy that they could plug into the uh serial port and it would talk TLS basically on the other side it would just translate it wow um, so that's another way you can do it uh, because if the hardware really is too much of a limitation to solve the problem you're trying to do like there's only so much you can do um but yeah so the like the respond to changes the second half of respond to changes is really more like recontextualize old hardware to solve new problems and try to keep that software as solid as possible so that it doesn't if your use case doesn't change that software shouldn't break is basically the idea and i mean like if that were true for the software that we have on the mac i would not have to write cesura because itunes would still work (laughs) the way i wanted to Mm. Uh, i know that this is not how software works especially not on the mac when you have a new os every year but like that is the world they are striving for, and I don't fault them for wanting that. I think it is 
I, I understand the desire for that. I just don't know how compatible that is with commercial operating systems, let's say. And like even open source ones like Linux is a shit show. So I don't know. Uh, <laughs> okay, let's get on to the last point. And then we can talk about how we feel about all this stuff. Uh, this one is the vaguest point. It is kind of weird. It's called everything has a place. And it's... What? It's, everything has a place? Yeah, it's kind of a mess of a point. Uh, and I'm going to just like chalk this up to the wiki is young. Um I'll just list these points and you'll understand that there is a through line to all of this point, which is everything has a place. It's just there are a lot of unrelated things in this point. It doesn't feel completely coherent. Uh, different local communities will have different needs and their systems should be shaped around those needs because nothing is truly universal. Uh, keep up with the, the historical context your work takes place in to avoid repeating mistakes learned in the past. Or encourage technological diversity while using standards to interoperate when appropriate. Just because we're being mindful of our computing footprint doesn't mean that we should sacrifice entertainment or artistic expression, even though neither of those things is inherently useful or productive. <laughs> uh, no, this is a direct quote. Nothing is obsolete or irrelevant. Even if they lose their original meaning, programmable, uh, programmable systems may be readapted to new purposes that they were not originally designed for. And then... Uh, I summarized this last one because I don't think it made a lot of sense. Otherwise, there are no one-size-fits-all approaches to things. Uh, so the idea is like uh, like there are slow and fast approaches to things. There are uh, incremental and one-shot approaches to different problems. You shouldn't try to siphon everything into a single one of those uh, views. You should use whichever one is appropriate for the problem you're trying to solve. So all of those things, like, yes, I agree, everything has a place is the through line to those things, but they are so wildly talking about different things that it sort of feels incoherent when you're actually reading through them. And you're like, what is the point here? <laughs> and the point is just, well, everything has a place. Uh, so it's the biggest one. Um, one of the things that I maybe didn't... Uh, hammer too much uh throughout this episode is that there is a lot of appreciation for historical context in permacommuting uh because we value philosophy we value uh designing things in intentional ways and uh knowing how your tools and your platforms and your programming languages are built and knowing the historical context behind them helps you learn why certain decisions were made and you can use that knowledge when built, working on your own tools and sort of not only learning the programming language, but learning the history of the programming language and the philosophy of the programming language is a big component of that. And I am all about that shit. Uh, so naturally, that's why I like it. <laughs> so those are the 10 principles of permacomputing. Now that I've gone through all of these, I would love to hear what you think of them. <laughs> hmm. I'm not saying it's bad, mm -hmm. but I think overall, I think it's in point four. There was a like a, uh, there was a, a there was a kind of a hope for the best, but yep. uh, yeah. So on that point, it's a hope for the best, prepare for the worst. There was kind of a, a ut utopian aspect to yep. a lot of this, and, and you have trouble getting on board with the ut utopian stuff. I get it. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where I, I lie. It's like 
each point on its own makes sense. And then you start to say, okay, I need to quote unquote follow all of those principles. And it's like, okay. And like, I think I understand why throughout this week when I was bitching about <clears throat> photo management, which <laughs> this is definitely a series of future episodes at this point, <laughs> that you said, yeah, you'll like this week's topic. Uh, yeah, especially on the aspect of, yeah, I kind of wish software was less soft. Uh, mm-hmm. If I can say it so, it was more like it's fixed. It can be run all the time, forever and ever, and it can stay uh, the way you used to like it. And that's it. And the constant, and I think there, there is a, a sense in all, throughout those 10 principle, principle that the constant trying to always get better. And I say get better in like huge quotes, but always improving and improving and improving. Yeah. Is the treadmill. Yeah. Is not something that. I don't think it's making a judgment call about this, but just saying like there are other ways than just that. So here's one way, and we think that you can make magic with old shit and old software that was not designed to do X things. Yeah. One of the things that really stands out to me with this, and I think the thing that made me gravitate towards it so much, is the idea that so much about modern software and the software treadmill that's going on is that not only is the software evolving, but the use case that the software is targeting is also evolving because other people's usage of that software is changing over time. But if you are not one of the people who are changing their use case alongside it, so like the example here would be like, I'm not on board with music streaming because it doesn't fit how I model listening to music on my devices. If you're not on board with that, every evolution of the music app towards that use case is getting further and further away from me. And the idea with permacomputing is, well, if your use case hasn't changed, you don't need to change your software. It should just keep working for you the way it is. And I understand that. (laughs) I I appreciate that. That's kind of how I wish it was. But at the same time, I like having cool, shiny new software platforms to develop on because there are a lot of cool frameworks that do cool shit. And if I write everything in assembly for a fictional computer... I'm going to have to write all this shit myself. And it, uh, platforms are sort of like a first level dependency where you can count on them more than third party dependencies. And I think they have a lot of value because of that. But you also have to keep up, which is the other problem. Right. And I, th- I think that's kind of where that's the funny part about thinking about a lot of the products we could use today. And and start to apply promo computing to it. Like, I think your example that you were mentioning, like websites that they need to move server to server because this server has now power for through it. And again, I guess I'm making this a photo management episode, but I was thinking about like, okay, but let's say I want to have one of the nice things that I like is I have my photos with me all the time because you know what? They're either on my phone, yes, I could have like literally SSDs strapped to my body everywhere I go. But if I want to recreate that in the more, uh, let's in the more uh, bedrock platform, I would end up having to create a lot of shit to make that happen, mm-hmm. right? Because a lot of our modern products are built on top of, let's put it this way 
shit ton of abstraction layers. Yeah. And that, to me, while you were going through the principle, is like, it was daunting. If mm-hmm. I were to do that in, let's say, one of my projects, not, not, not work project list, let's not kid ourselves here, but even try to apply this these principles into, let, let's take again an example, Sejura. And we wanted to do, like, in theory, uh, even if we extend some of the, oh, avoid unreliable dependencies and things like that, like, this could end up being like having to run your uh, your fucking uh, MP3 parser and an audio player and things like that, and then yep. it's good according to the principles, but at the same time, it will. Uh, what was the one about? Is that human scale, right? Yeah. That they, they keep it small, so you would have your pro- like the more dependencies you would end up. It it's hard to keep it the scale of the product something that can fit in your brain, reasonably speaking, for complexity. Yeah, I think I think uh, like to go to UXN and like the apps that they wrote for that, uh, that Hundred Rabbits wrote for that. Like they're artists, but they're very like, and I don't say this in a derogatory way, but they're they're very much like. I don't want to call them retro gaming either because I think they would take offense to that. Um, but they're like, like their art tools operate on Famicom sprite sheet files, .chr files, I think they're called, uh, which. Okay. Uh, or maybe that's the font editor. I don't remember. But basically, like they, they use the same file format that the Famicom uses for sprites, and so they do a lot of pixel art, and they do a lot of chiptune sounding music, which is great if that's the art that you are producing. But if you are trying to consume art on a computer platform with that limited hardware that is not chiptune or Famicom sprites, (laughs) it's kind of limiting, right? Uh, And I guess, like, I I don't mean to say that uh, art that is produced within those means is not art, because it definitely is, and they do a lot of really cool shit, and I really love love them for that. But I don't think everything has to fit within those constraints. And, like, even their uh, YouTube videos, like, first of all, you can't, record youtube videos in uxn pure you have to do it from the machine that's running the emulator they're Mm. often listening to music when they record those videos which i'm pretty sure is not playing in uxn uh, unless (laughs) when it's chiptunes it is but a lot of it the time it isn't uh so like and maybe that's fine maybe like they just want their core uh creative tools to be in uh, uxn so that they are infinitely portable to whichever the computer they have to get next and that's enough for them. And it doesn't matter that the entire computer isn't running in UXN, right? Um, right. So, but yeah, but I, I just love this framework for just thinking about these things more while I'm developing, not necessarily adopting all of these principles, because I think, like, of course, as soon as you're working on a Mac, like a lot, half of these have to go by the wayside. Right. <laughs> but, uh, try to be more intentional about embracing cer- certain aspects of these things while you're working on your hardware and at least taking them into consideration, even if you can't embrace 100% of it. And I think you're making a good point because when we went by going through this list, I was like, this is a like this principle as good ideas of like, let's put it this way, uh, keeping it flexible, for example, like, you might want to be more like you might have designed a product to do X, Y, and Z, and then you realize you just does Z with it, and that should be good. You shouldn't be like, oh crap, they do that. I don't want them to do that unless it's harassment and things like that. But yeah. I digress for a sec. But like 
certain of those principles are going to be important to possibly improve some of the software we build today. And that, I totally agree with you on that. And to tie it back to some stuff that we have to do at work, like when we work on medical projects, or even when we don't sometimes, we have to do risk analysis and say, like, how can this be misused? And Mm. we have to give a risk level to each one of them because... Like if there are health or uh, it's the interest of someone's life, uh, of course, we want to counteract certain of those. Uh, Some of them are very low risk and therefore like they're not really an issue. It's like, yeah, it's misused, but no one's going to get hurt from it. So like, who cares? Right. Um, But yeah, we try to at least do some work ahead of time to try and identify what those cases are to at least plan something for those cases if they are bad. And I think like it's not a bad thing to, uh, as part of the hope for the best, prepare for the worst, like to to put that in part of your abuse abuse proofingness. That's not even a word. When you're abuse proofing <laughs> your software, uh, just try to do that kind of high level analysis of like how how can people misuse this in ways that are bad for humanity. Right. Right. Um. I do have a question. Uh oh. Would you be willing to go all in on, like, let's say for one project, go all in and say, I'll do perma computing for project X? And I'm not even saying which project. Like, you can decide which project, but would you be willing to go all in on that, on those 10 principles for a specific project? I've been thinking about it. And, like, obviously, maybe the first one isn't going to be Cesura because I don't want to write an MP3 decoder. <laughs> <laughs> But I have been thinking, like, I I really like what I'm seeing coming out of the UXN project. And I was thinking, well, what would it actually, like, because when I was buying the Mac Mini, I think we talked about this a little bit. Like, I was talking about what are my dependencies on the Mac right now and what would I need to figure out to ditch the Mac? Mm. And I was just thinking, well, okay, let's pretend that I can just write all of my software ecosystem from scratch for whatever target platform i'm looking at what would i need to build to feel comfortable on that platform and of course like the the big issue with all of this is that like we can't avoid it the web browser is kind of an issue mm-hmm. uh especially since web browsers are basically operating systems now like it's you have to find alternatives to that and i do think i have some alternatives to that uh whether it be gemini or uh, even lighter weight stuff for lower target hardware like the text protocol uh, and stuff like that uh like to some degree like communication would be nice like either mail or chat or both uh social networking like i know people don't like twitter but i really really like twitter and i would like something like twitter that would be possible on these things and again i have ideas on how you could do that so i was the i was approaching it more from like if i was trying to create my own software ecosystem entirely on Mm. another computer what would i need to do and how would I do it? And I've got a bunch of ideas with relation to that. Uh, nothing I'm ready to share today. Um, but I have been thinking about it. The main thing is like, I don't particularly care for any of the better platforms that were listed there. Um, <laughs> and I'm just on the lookout for like, are there bedrock platforms that they did not consider that belong on that list? Or is there some way that, because the thing is like, I I, I could always say like 
my Bedrock platform is macOS 9 because that platform will never move ever. The problem is there's a finite number of macOS 9 machines in the world, even though there are a lot of them. And it's not necessarily accessible to everyone. And you can't really like manufacture new macOS 9 machines right now. Um, so I, I was trying to find like, well, what is an OS that is inoffensive, that is stable, and that could continue to have new machines made for it? And I don't really know what that is because like Linux is a bunch of issues too, and it's still a moving platform. So it's like, it's, it's trying to find like, well, what is the platform that I would be willing to build this on top of that is blocking me right now? But like philosophically, I am not opposed to trying to build something in this approach. Hmm. Okay. Uh, this was an interesting answer. I was not expecting you to be willing to go not all in, but still be willing to go down that rabbit hole. I- I'm guessing you wouldn't. <laughs> no, no, come on. Come on. Uh I, I, don't want to write your own raw image decoder. Uh, <laughs> You know what? We were talking about that overline <laughs> this week, and this literally made me think about. Okay, I don't want to write it, but how does it work? <laughs> oh, why are you saying it before I say it? You're <laughs> correct, though. I was quite curious about uh, how the file format works, like, and how to properly read it, and all these data structures are constructed and things like that. So I was like. Yeah, yeah, and then I was like, "Uh oh, no, oh, that's dangerous to think that. That's the da- curiosity is dangerous." It was my plan all along. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I, I guess we could say the same thing about MPG decoding too, right? Yeah, so, yeah, so yeah. Although so, I'm not uh, particularly curious about MP3 decoding. <laughs> fair, fair. But then I started to understand why some people, and I want to quote them right now. But I sent you a quote about somebody saying like, "I at the spice." camera manufacturer not using dngs and i was like yeah okay i could understand why now if i were yeah. to write my own uh, raw parser uh but yeah so see not really not really i uh, i think and maybe that's that is a problem though that we're so used to the constant evolution of technology that to kind of i'll say be stuck in what we used to have that that is good enough it's kind of hard to say oh it was good enough you know yeah and the other thing is like i think what we're touching on right now is we have become too accustomed to a certain level of abstraction that it is daunting it is considered to be daunting to go lower than well it depends right because i I was literally talking about this before the show on select button uh there's an argument about unity because i don't know if you heard but unity is merging with an adware company which is really fucked up what yeah no i didn't hear that um so basically like unity users are crying uh and they should be um and the point i was trying to make on the forum was as someone who approached game development from outside the game development world uh i thought it was better and easier to write my own 2d game engine than it was to depend on a 2d game engine because I like to understand how the level of abstraction below the one I'm working at works. And there are a lot of people in the forum who are like, yeah, but I don't want to work on scaffolding for my project, which is like, I totally get it. I I understand there are a lot of creative people out there who are working on games who to them, the thing they want to work on the most is prototyping and 
focusing their game idea before they start fucking around with the scaffolding and it makes complete sense you are going right. to waste so much time writing your 2d <laughs> engine if you are just trying to like tweak the physics on your bounce animation or something yeah uh, but that's sort of like what we were talking about before we started recording and it's funny that it came back to the same thing here which is some people just don't want to touch lower levels of abstraction and i think i'm way more willing than most to go to lower uh levels of abstraction because i think it is inherently good as a programmer to be curious and to want to know how the lower levels of abstraction work to do your job better fair and i think i I think that's where i make the distinction is it's fine to be curious but there are people that are curious and want to implement those things or work at that level. And there are people <clears throat> like me that are curious about those things and that's it. Yeah, it also depends on like what the domain is, right? So mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of web developers today who have no idea how HTTP works, which is really weird because everything is being delivered by HTTP. Mm. But I think only maybe 5 to 10% would be able to actually have a good enough understanding of how HTTP works that they could make a bare-bones server. I see. Um, Kind of changing gears a bit, I know you mentioned, I, and I'm sorry, I, I don't recall what it is, the the virtualized microchip and the name. Oh, is UXN. Right. Is there other, and I know it's recent, like a recent invention of the combining of permaculture with computing, but is there other... I don't want to say more known, but is there other like projects out there that are like really saying like, hey, I really want to follow permacomputing principles for my project and here's what I've done. So there are not a ton because again, like especially like the fleshing out of permacomputing is very much a 2022 thing. Uh, I think like there have been maybe five articles before the wiki was written Uh explaining permacomputing by various people and therefore there's very little documentation as to what it means and like this year they're really putting in the effort to try to have this wiki and try to uh, discuss and come to terms with what these principles really should be and as i mentioned the wiki is literally like a month old so a lot of the fleshing out has happened literally in the last few weeks um so i don't think there are very many uh projects that are built specifically around the preconceived idea that they're going to be a permaculture project uh, i mentioned collapse os which was the uh the z80 operating Mm -hmm. system which i believe the author of that is involved in maybe not the wiki but is involved in the discussions around uh permacomputing and he also has another project which is i think it's called dusk os which is a 32-bit operating system that has the same philosophy but just because it's on more capable hardware you can do a lot more with it which is maybe a better target platform for uh, certain types of projects mm-hmm. um so those are the two that come to mind a uh, gemini kind of became a permacomputing project after the fact because gemini is technically like a 2019 thing yeah yeah no. and <laughs> i would expect possibly your answer would be like projects exist before that yeah uh, the inventor of permacomputing saying, hey, permacomputing exists, here's the principle. And then the kind of retroactive lead, I say, hey, we were struggling to find words on the goals or principles we wanted to do for this project, but 
voila. Exactly. Uh, I think one of the things that kind of works against Gemini in this context is that Gemini has enforced TLS, which again sort of limits the target hardware that it can be on. There Mm. are sort of forks of Gemini that are literally just like Gemini without TLS and with a few less features. Uh, There's Mercury, which is kind of the official uh, spinoff of that, which has had very little traction. And there's one called the text protocol, which has minimally more traction. Uh, it's just a bit more documented with an actual spec than, uh, Mercury was, um, in practice, I think very few people are actually using those, but I mean, it's trivial to implement. Uh, if you want to, uh, run a, text protocol uh, platform you can literally just type one line of code into your terminal and get data from a server and it works uh, it's not complicated um, so I was looking at those a bit otherwise like there are things from the past that align very well with perma com- computing values even though they were obviously never designed with it in mind like small talk there is a lot of overlap with small talk values and perma computing which is great because I'm a big Objective-C fan. And like part of the Perman Computing Wiki is just a section, which is, I think the section is called assessments or something, which is like, hey, let's go back and look at all of these technologies that already exist and look at them through a Perman Computing lens, uh, which may be useful. So you can figure out like, why do Perman Computing people really love C, Lua, and assembly language fourth uh all these programming languages uh there are reasons behind why people gravitate to those things and they are explained on the wiki so definitely i recommend if you're interested in the stuff and you want to find out more about what permacomputing people think about specific technologies uh it's still a young wiki of course but there are a lot of articles detailing that on the permacomputing wiki that are very fascinating to read i have read every article on the wiki because of course i have um of course you do yeah Uh, I've had a lot of interesting reading in the past few weeks, and I definitely recommend it to fans of the podcast who are, uh, who have understood most of the stuff we've said on the show this episode. Yeah, and I've loaded up the the wiki uh, while we were talking, and it also, uh, it also would it uh, own quite a lot when it's on simple websites and things like that. So it's, uh, it's pretty simple, so it's pretty neat. And I think it works on non-HTTPS as well, if you're coming from an old school computer. Ooh. But yeah, otherwise, that's it for me. Good. So I'm sure Yannick will put a lot of, uh, for sure put the link to the wiki and other links in the show notes. Yeah. And you can find those said show notes for this episode at limitlesspossibility.net slash 187. No, that's a joke. That's a joke. It's 188. Wait, seriously? Uh, my my file says one eight seven. Oh shit! I've re- named it the wrong thing. Oh well. Oh wow! We'll I, fix I was it making, in post. I was making a joke because you fucked up the uh, the, the 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 administrative notes for a while, saying this would be episode one eight seven. And I but fucked up not... my recording file as well. Great, that's job, good. Me. <laughs> so yes, so the show notes will be at limitlesspossibility.net slash one eighty eight so one hundred and eighty eight. You can also find a back catalog of episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the show on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can also find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Lukonush. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And you can find find Yannick at Sakarina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And I strongly suggest that you follow the uh 
show on Twitter because we will send you a reminder when we'll be back after the summer hiatus on September 11. So see you in September. See you in September.